Ahoy mateys! Welcome to Podcasts of the Caribbean, a podcast covering the world of Pirates of the Caribbean, from the movies, to books, to theme parks, to everything in between. My name is Justin Helmer, and I will be your host on this voyage through the Caribbean. Welcome back to Podcast of the Caribbean. This is episode five. And in today's episode, we are going to be starting The Dead Man's Chest, which is the second film in the Pirates franchise. Such a good movie. Oh my God, where do I start? So let's do some background info on the film like I did with The Curse of the Black Pearl. Pirates of the Caribbean Dead Man's Chest premiered at the Disneyland Resort in California on June 24th, 2006 and it opened to the public on July 7, 2006. So obviously The Curse of the Black Pearl was a huge success for Disney. They were not expecting the movie to be successful at all, um, but because it was so successful, Disney ordered not one, but two sequels at the same time. And if that wasn't hard enough to make a sequel, they had to film both of these sequels at the same time back-to-back, which is crazy and honestly it's geez I don't know how they did it I don't know how they did it but they shot for 200 days that is one of the longest shoots for a movie usually movie shoots are like maybe like 50 60 days if it's a larger movie it's probably like 80 90 days something like that but this was 200 days for both of these movies that is crazy that's almost a whole year that these people had to sacrifice from their lives to make these movies which Oh my, I can't. It's crazy. So obviously, you know, Gore Verbinski, the director, he came back for both of these. Jerry Bruckheimer, the producer, he came back for these. Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio, the writers from the first movie, came back for this film. Everyone came back. They got the whole crew back together. They got the whole cast back together. So that was one of the biggest pluses of this entire um, endeavor. And there was a lot of issues in pre-production for this. There is a behind-the-scenes um, feature on the Dead Man's Chest bonus features that is called Charting the Return, and it's about the pre-production of Dead Man's Chest and At World's End. Uh, more so Dead Man's Chest because it's on the Dead Man's Chest disc, but it's crazy to watch that because there are actually many times where they were honestly expecting the movie to be shut down because they couldn't find a way to get these movies made without spending millions of dollars. There's a scene in that behind-the-scenes video that they are trying to cut as many costs as possible so they can get down to that budget, because if they don't, Disney's going to axe the movie. And it's serious. Like, it's really crazy because Gore is talking about how, you know, maybe tomorrow this movie won't even be a thing anymore. It'll just be gone. And it's crazy if you're a big Pirates of the Caribbean fan you're interested in the behind the scenes go watch that it's on YouTube just search up charting the return it's a fantastic behind the scenes video and I'll probably talk about it more in depth on a different episode um, because we'll definitely go into production and behind the scenes stories that'll be a lot of cool stuff to talk about but this these movies had a lot of time put and money put into them and I'm so thankful that they came out good they came out fantastic Dead Man's Chest is literally, it gets better than the first movie. At World's End gets better than Dead Man's Chest. I don't know how they did it. It was a miracle, honestly. It was a miracle. Um, but, yeah, this was one of the biggest and most expensive movie shoots in history. And I don't think it's ever going to do, there's no movie that will ever do something like this again. Uh, Gore Verbinski said many times that this was the end of an era for filmmaking on this scale. Because this was a location movie. It was primarily shot on location in all these different islands in the Caribbean. This was crazy expensive and one of the biggest movies ever shot. Like, it's crazy to think about. But that's enough kind of uh, background information on Dead Man's Chest. Let's get into the actual film itself. So I'm going to be doing something a little different this time. Uh, last time I kind of just had notes and kind of a general script of the film and I was kind of going through that. This time I'm going to have the movie playing in the background with the dialogue and everything because I don't want to miss anything. I feel like one of the problems I had with the Curse of the Black Pearl episodes is I was trying to go off of memory way too much and I would forget scenes that I would 
oh wait, this scene happened before this scene, and this scene went after that scene. So I don't want to do that. I want to keep it all in order. I want to make sure I'm not missing anything. So with the movie playing, I can stop it. I can pause it. I can do all that. I can point out little things in the background so I can actually get all of that. I won't miss anything and it'll probably be a better experience for everyone. So it's kind of, this will be sort of like a commentary on the movie, but I kind of just have it on to get a better gist of everything. Because I mean, you know, you think you can recite these movies from memory when you've seen them so many times, but when you actually start talking about it, you, you're like, oh wait, what happened here? I forget this line, or, you know. So having this here, I think, will help um, so that I don't miss anything. So, yeah. Dead Man's Chest. The opening title, when that comes on the screen here, fantastic. Um, one thing to note that I don't think a lot of people pick up on is you can hear a heartbeat in this opening sequence um, when the title comes on the screen. Honestly, one of the coolest openings to any movie ever, honestly, I'm not joking, the ocean background and then the title, just Dead Man's Chest comes on, not, like, it, oh, it's so good, like, oh my god, the heartbeat in the back also, you know, with the foreshadowing of the heart in this movie being such an important object, I just love that heartbeat in the background makes this so ominous it's fantastic um, but then we go into right over to Port Royal and we have one of the best movie openings in cinematic history to me um, we start off with Will and Elizabeth's wedding um, so obviously time has passed between Curse of the Black Pearl and Dead Man's Chest um, it is one year that has passed one year between the movies in universe so, of course, in real life it was three years, but in universe it's one year past. So Will and Elizabeth at this point have probably been in their relationship for a long enough time that they are both comfortable with actually getting married. Um, but unfortunately it doesn't go that way for them because someone shows up and ruins their day, which honestly... Come on, you couldn't have waited, you could have at least have given them the day, get them married, then you can show up, whatever. We'll get to him in a second. But I love the shot of Kira sitting in the rain with the wedding just ruined all around her. Fantastic shot. And um, as soon as we leave her, we go right over to um, a lot of soldiers coming into Port Royal on a bunch of ships, and we get the flash of the East India Trading Company flag, which, of course, is our big force in this movie. In the first movie, we had the Royal Navy, and they were kind of our British um, force in the film. In this film, we do have a bit of the Navy, but it's more so only the East India Trading Company, and they are very important in Dead Man's Chest and At World's End because they are led by our new villain who will show up in just a little bit. But I love this montage of all the soldiers running through Port Royal, the ominous music with the East India Trading Company theme mixed in, the da -na 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 -na. like, oh, oh my God. It's such a fantastic opening, and we have these soldiers going in, breaking into... Uh, Mr. Brown's blacksmith shop and who works there well Will Turner they've come to arrest Will Turner for a reason that we'll get to in just a second but they all show up with Will in irons um, at the site of the wedding and Elizabeth and Will are both you know saddened this has happened on this day you know but Elizabeth is crying, but, you know, Will says, you know, you look beautiful, and I, ugh, I love them. Like, this is, this is them in, like, their, like, prime of the relationship. Before anything goes wrong, this is them still, like, being so happy. And we don't get that after this movie. We don't get that. Uh, because we have a lot of, a lot of sadness after this movie with them. Um, but... Elizabeth, you know, says, I think it's bad luck for the for the groom to see the bride before the wedding. 
and then we have the return of Governor Weatherby Swan, played by Jonathan Price. He's back for this movie, and he is outraged. You know, he says, "You know, stand your men down at once. Do you hear me?" And then the figure on the screen turns around, and this is none other than Lord Cutler Beckett, played by Tom Hollander. I will say right here, right now, at the beginning of this episode, Lord Beckett is the best Pirates of the Caribbean villain. That is final. I am not going to argue with anyone. Yes, Davy Jones is a cool villain, and we will get to him and how awesome he is. But there is something about Lord Beckett, there is something about Cutler Beckett that makes me like him so much. And that is because he is... Maybe he doesn't see himself as evil, but he is evil. He is ruthless. He is cunning. He knows what he wants, and he knows how to get it. But with all of that, he is still calm. He is still collected. He never loses his composure. Never in these films. He never loses his composure. He's always calm and collected, and he knows what he wants. He is the perfect... Um, antithesis to Jack Sparrow. Of course, both these characters do know each other, and there is a lot of history between them, which we'll get to in a later episode when we detail one of the books. Um, but Beckett here, he is ruthless, but he knows what how to do what he wants, and he knows how to manipulate people, just like Jack. But Beckett has more of that evilness to him that Jack doesn't have. Jack still has those good traits, and he knows when he's probably doing something he shouldn't. Beckett is only in it for his own gain. He wants to rule the seas. He wants to have control of the seas. And we get more of this info, of course, in that world's end, so I won't go too much into it, but I'm just saying here, though, Beckett is the best villain in this franchise, and if you don't agree with me, I'm sorry, but I'm not changing my mind. You can argue all you want about Davy Jones being the best villain. And yes, he is the best. He's a fantastic villain. But he's second to Beckett. Um, and one more thing I'll bring up before we move on is... Since we have two villains in this film... Um, it, would, it probably would be weird and hard to juggle both of these villains. So each one has their time to shine in each movie. So in Dead Man's Chest, Beckett is introduced first... But he is the secondary villain in this film. Davy Jones is the main villain in Dead Man's Chest. But then when we go to At World's End, Davy Jones takes a backseat, and Davy Jones then becomes the secondary villain, while Beckett becomes the main villain. Which I do really like how they give each of these two guys their time to shine in either movie. Um, I don't know if they really planned it like that, but that's kind of how it comes across. Um, but... I do like how they give each one's time to shine, but yeah, I will stop my rant on Cutler Beckett. I'm just saying he is a fantastic character, the best villain, Tom Hollander's performance. Oh my god, like, one of the best villains ever. One of my favorite villains. Probably my favorite villain, but that's enough of Beckett. Let's go on. So, of course, Weatherby Swan knows Beckett. Um, he says, Cutler Beckett, and then Beckett corrects him and says, it's Lord now, actually. Um, and then Weatherby Swan says, Lord or not, you have no reason and no authority to arrest this man. And then Becca says, in fact, I do. And then he calls on Ian Mercer. So Ian Mercer is our, I guess, third villain here. He's kind of just a henchman to Beckett. He's not a main, a main villain. He's just a henchman. But I love this guy. This guy... He doesn't get a lot of screen time, um, but he's in both Dead Man's Chest and At World's End. Um, but I think he is such a fantastic character, a great henchman to Beckett. He is ruthless. If Beckett is evil, Mercer is even eviler. And we'll see that later in this movie and in the next movie. Mercer will stop at nothing to do what Beckett tells him to. And that's what makes him and Beckett so formidable and so fear, so uh, terrifying um, to not just pirates, but to all the characters in these films. But I love Mercer. What a great character. Um, but Mercer gives Beckett the warrant for the arrest of William Turner. So he gives it to Weatherby Swan and 
Weatherby Swan kind of scoffs at Will, like, oh, I should have known. Like, of course, this blacksmith would get in trouble. But then he reads it, and then he says, this warrants for Elizabeth Swan. And then <laughs> Beckett has this great line where he's like, oh, is it? That's annoying. My mistake. Arrest her. So they then arrest Elizabeth, um, where she demands what charges they're being arrested for. And then Beckett finally pulls out, here's the one for William Turner. And then he also brings out one more warrant, and he says, I have another one for a Mr. James Norrington. Is he present? And then Governor Swan says, Commodore Norrington resigned his position here some months ago. So that is interesting. That is a little tidbit um, on Norrington that, you know, some people could obviously quickly brush over. It's one simple line. But... What happened to Norrington? We'll find out later in this movie. But what happened to Norrington? Why did he resign? Um, it's a very interesting question. It's placed at the very beginning of this movie. And we don't see him until like an hour later in this film. So it's very interesting as to what happened to him. But we'll get to that very soon in a, a few minutes. Um, we'll kind of talk about what happened to Norrington and why he resigned. So after Governor Swan tells Beckett that Norrington resigned, I love this moment with Beckett, and he says, I don't believe that was the answer to the question I asked. <laughs> but then Will says, Lord Beckett, in the category of questions not answered, and then Elizabeth chimes in and says, we are under the jurisdiction of the King's Governor of Port Royal, and you will tell us what we are charged with. So then Governor Swan reads out the charge, and he says, the charge is conspiring to set free a man convicted of crimes against the crown and empire, and condemned to death, for which the, and then he pauses, and Beckett finishes for him, and he says, for which the punishment, regrettably, is also death. So this shocks both Will and Elizabeth, uh, because they are now sentenced to death, uh, which sucks. It sucks big time, especially on your wedding day. But Beckett walks up to them, and then he says, Perhaps you remember a certain pirate named Jack Sparrow. And then both Will and Elizabeth correct him, and they both say, Captain. And then Elizabeth says, Captain Jack Sparrow. And then Beckett laughs, and he says, Captain Jack Sparrow. Yes, I thought you'd might. And then we go right over to the Black Pearl, where... Um, this is now a year later. The sails have been repaired. I forgot to really mention at the end of Curtis the Black Pearl, when the Pearl comes back to Port Royal to pick up Jack, the sails have been patched up and repaired. Uh, so they're no longer ripped and tattered, which is great. But we go over to the Black Pearl here, and we see Gibbs, Josh Me Gibbs, he's back. And he is singing a very classic pirate sea shanty. He is singing a very fitting song um, for this movie. Uh, the Dead Man's Chest song, you know, the 15 men on the Dead Man's Chest, yo-ho-ho, and a bottle of rum. So, very interesting song. Um, also includes the Dead Man's Chest. I wonder if that, if this song is where they got the, kind of the idea for the name of the Dead Man's Chest. Not too sure. Um, but very fitting he's singing this song. Um, but he's on, on deck. It's nighttime, it's foggy. He's singing, having a good time, and he's about to drink his rum, and then he hears a, lar a loud chime in the distance. And then he looks over, and we see a bunch of crows and birds um, in the sky above the pearl, and they're flying over to something nearby, which is a Turkish prison. A very scary and terrifying-looking Turkish prison, if I might add. It is absolutely terrifying, well, probably the scariest prison in the world. I mean, Alcatraz has n has nothing on this Turkish prison. Look at this prison and tell me this is not the scariest place in the world. This looks like an evil villain's castle. You know, it looks terrifying. Um, we don't get a lot of this Turkish prison, um, but it's funny, in the video game adaptation for At World's End, which for some reason also includes Dead Man's Chest, I don't know. They actually have a level in the game um, with Jack in the Turkish prison, um, and he runs into some pretty interesting people in there. But we'll get to that on a different episode when we cover the games. Um, but for now, we see this prison, and it is 
terrifying. It is absolutely terrifying. Um, we have these guards leading a bunch of prisoners into the gate. And on the side of this pathway, there are a bunch of people in cages, in gibbets, um, which is terrifying. And a lot of them are dead or dying. Um, and then we have this shot of this one man being um, pulled away through the doors and he's screaming bloody murder. Like, this is terrifying. And this is kids are supposed to watch this movie. Then right after that scene, we have this guy in the cage who gets his eye picked out by a crow. And they actually show the eye coming out of his out of the socket in the movie. Like the kids are traumatized forever by this scene. It's horrifying. But we have the guy screaming as he's pulled through the gates. They close them and we see one last shot of that crow finishing off that guy. Poor man. Um, but then we go down to the shore where there's a few guards who are throwing some coffins into the ocean. A um, bunch of dead people, unfortunately. Uh, but what? talk about an opening to a film. You know, first we have the wedding scene, which is fantastic, and Beckett's arrival. And then we have this terrifying opener to where is Jack now? Terrifying. But we have these um, coffins being dumped into the water here. And the camera focuses on one of these coffins in um, particular. And we go over to a little while later where all the coffins are just in the calm sea. And a crow be uh, comes down and sits on one of the coffins. And it starts pecking the surface. And... Um, while it's doing that, a gunshot from the coffin blows the crow right off and kills it. And it drops right into the water. And then the source of that gunshot comes out of the coffin, and we see a pistol. And then you see the pistol kind of just turns around. And then he pulls the pistol back in, and out comes Captain Jack Sparrow. He's back. And he has escaped Turkish prison. Why was he in there? We'll see that in just a second. Um, but he... Another fantastic escape by Jack Sparrow. I mean, if there's one thing this guy can do well, it's escaping. Um, but he pulls his hat, at, his, uh, hat out. And then he says, sorry, mate. And then he grabs the skeleton from beneath him and pulls off his leg and uses his the poor man's leg as a paddle. Um, which also makes me wonder how long these corpses were in these coffins, if they're already decomposed. Um, kind of weird. But anyway, Jack uses the guy's leg to start paddling back to the Black Pearl, and Gibbs helps him up onto the ship, and Jack uh, throws the leg right into Gibbs' hand, and Gibbs says, not quite according to plan. And then Jack says, complications arose, ensued, were overcome. So Jack begins to walk away, and then we have Cotton as well, who reappears here with his parrot. Um, and then, you know, Gibbs follows Jack, and he says, you got what you went in for then. And then Jack pulls out his prize of what he went in the prison for. And as he's walking, he comes face to face with his crew. And this is not the crew that we are, that we know. This is not the Motley crew from the first film. This is a bunch of new people, a bunch of new crew members. And there is the question begged here of who are these people and what happened to the original crew. We'll get to that in just a second. So Jack is faced with these crew members and Gibbs says, you know, Cabin, I think the crew, meeting me as well, were expecting something a bit more shiny. And then, you know, Gibbs then says this very interesting line here. And it says, well, with the Isle de Muerta going pear-shaped, reclaimed by the sea with the treasure along with it. Which is very interesting. Because that also kind of brings back... So after Curse of the Black Pearl, Jack and the Pearl went back to Isle de Muerta for the treasure. But the island sank beneath the ocean. Which is very, very interesting. Um, and it's a very, really cool plot point to kind of make the world just 
keep feeling like we do have this con continuation from the first film. Uh, but it also is very interesting as to, you know, the island going underwater. And this is also alluded to at the end of the first movie um, in the end credit scene with Barbosa's corpse lying on the treasure and Jack the Monkey becoming cursed again. You can see in that scene the treasure, no, not the treasure, the, the water has risen a good few feet from where it was earlier in the movie. Uh, so you can see the water was was up to Barbosa's feet, um, which is really interesting. So I wonder if, since the curse was broken, the water began to rose, began to rise, and then the island would then sunk underwater, which is very interesting. Yeah, uh, because the, we don't see the water kind of rise until that incredible scene, which is after the curse was broken. So very interesting idea and very interesting thing there about Il de Muerta. Um, but the crew here um, also ch uh, chimes in and says, and the Royal Navy chasing us all around the Atlantic, and the hurricane, Marty chimes in. So, of course, Marty is back. So we have a few crew members. We have Gibbs, we have Cotton, and we have Marty. But who are these new crew members, and where is the crew, and where is Anna Maria? You know, where are they? Marty here mentions the hurricane, which is kind of a throwaway line here. It's just kind of, a, oh yeah, something else that's happened to us. But it comes back later when we see Narrington. Um, so I'll talk about it a little bit here. Maybe I'll just talk about it in full here. Um, but the hurricane is a very, very important uh, event in the pirate mythos. The hurricane was, an, it was a hurricane, obviously, um, that hit the Pearl off of Tripoli. Um, while Narrington chased them. So, of course, at the end of the Curse of the Black Pearl, Narrington gave Jack uh, one day's head start before he went to chase after him. So, while Narrington was chasing him in the Dauntless, um, they ran into a hurricane off the coast of Tripoli. And for some reason, there's no known um, record of what happened with this, of, with this hurricane. Um, the only thing that really talks about this is a children's book. Like, I'm not joking. There is only one real met real record of what exactly happened with this storm, and that is a children's book called A Storm at Sea. Um, now, I don't have this book, but I just bought it from Amazon earlier today, so once it arrives, I'm going to read it. Obviously, it's a kid's book, but... I wonder if it'll really give me some insight on what actually happened here. Because I was checking the wiki and everything, and there isn't a good breakdown of the plot of the book, unfortunately. Um, which kind of happened with a lot of this Pirates media, with comics and these books. They were kind of lost. Um, and a lot of it is lost, but I have been spending a lot of time trying to find as much of this as I can for you guys. Um, I found a lot. Um, almost two-thirds of the comics that were published in the Disney Adventures magazines um, that I'll be sharing with you guys on a later episode. But I wanted to, you know, I wanted to kind of make sure I got all this stuff because also it was new to me. I hadn't seen a lot of these comics. I hadn't seen a lot of, a lot of these books um, because, you know, it's been 15 years since these things came out. You know, especially with these magazines, they're hard to find. You have to track these issues down, see if the comics are even still in there. I found a master list, thankfully, of these comics, and I was able to find a good amount. Unfortunately, there are still a lot that are lost that I haven't found that I might not even find ever, which does suck because the titles sound really interesting. Um, but I did order this book, A Storm at Sea. When it does come, I will see if there's any interesting information or if it's just going to be kind of just what I already know about this and what we already know. Um, but back to the hurricane, Narrington made the choice to follow Jack through this hurricane. Now, Jack knew the Pearl would survive because it was the Black Pearl. The Black Pearl is the fastest ship in the Caribbean. He knew the Black Pearl would survive this hurricane, so he had no issue going into it. Narrington, on the other hand, of course, he had the Dauntless, and there is no way a ship of, of that size would get through a storm like this. And Jack didn't expect 
Norrington to sail through it, which is alluded to later when Norrington shows up and Gibbs says, you know, Lord, you didn't try to sail through it. Because Jack wasn't expecting that. He was expecting to go through the hurricane. Ha, Norrington won't be able to follow me. But Norrington made the choice to follow him into the hurricane. And that was a disastrous uh, thing for Norrington to do because what we find out is that the Dauntless was was destroyed. Norrington lost his crew and he survived somehow. Norrington survived. He made it back to Port Royal and he resigned from the Navy and he disappeared. Um, so it's very interesting here how Norrington made that choice and it ruined his life. Um, of course, the Pearl made it out unscathed, or I guess unscathed. It lost a good amount of our motley crew from the first film. A lot of those kind of background pirates um, were lost in this hurricane. Um, and there's also the question of what happened to Anna Maria here. She's not in this movie, but I did talk about it in the the other episodes about Zoe Zeldana did not want to come back for Dead Man's Chest. Um because of her experience on the first film, if you want to have that full story. Um, I think it's on episode three, um, but I talk about it there. No ill will, thankfully, with her. Um, um, they kind of patched things up. She and Jerry Bruckheimer patched things up, so there's no ill will, but you know, it does suck that Anna Maria isn't here, which kind of begs the question, was she killed off then? There's no official confirmation about what happened to Anna Maria's character. We don't know if she was killed off or not. Um, but she's just not here. So my personal headcanon is that she was also one of the pirates who passed away in the hurricane, um, unfortunately. So Anna Maria does pop up in the comics, which we'll get to. But unfortunately, no more Anna Maria for us. Um, but this hurricane is a pivotal moment in Jack's story and Norrington's story. So I wanted to make sure I um, brought you guys up to speed with this, because this is a very, very important event for both these characters. So, of course, the crew is, you know, telling Jack they're kind of unhappy. And then Jack, you know, says, is that how you're all feeling? That old Jack isn't serving your best interests as captain? And then we have a great moment with Cotton's parrot here, where the parrot says, what? Walk the plank, and then Jack pulls out his pistol and said, what did the bird say? And then um, Moses, who is this um, pirate who is kind of the leader of these, I guess not the leader, the more, the more important um, pirate from this new group here, he says, do not blame the bird. Show us what is on that piece of cloth there. So then, um, right before Jack has the chance, Jack the monkey jumps down and frightens everyone. Jack tries to shoot his pistol, but it um, misfires, nothing comes out. And then, um, of course we see Jack the monkey is cursed. He's still under the curse because he took the medallion. Um, and that's honestly how Jack the monkey stays. Jack the monkey stays cursed, pretty much, which is probably why he doesn't die. <laughs> Probably why the monkey stays alive so long is that he can't die. Um, which, you know, we see later on in these movies. The monkey, Jack the monkey does some weird stuff that would honestly kill a normal creature. But since it's cursed, I mean, you can do anything. The, Jack the monkey can do anything. Because he's cursed. Like, fantastic character. He's invincible. He could do, he could, he could stop everyone by himself, honestly. But Jack the monkey grabs the cloth from Jack. And Jack grabs one of the other pirate's guns and shoots Jack, the monkey, um, who loses the piece of cloth. And Marty runs over and grabs it. And then Marty says, it's a key. And then Jack says, no, much more better. And then he grabs it from Marty and says, it is a drawing of a key. Which, of course, is pretty funny. But we have here the first reveal of the drawing of the key to the dead man's chest. And... This is really cool when you look at this actual cloth here. There's a lot of marks on it, um, tally marks. So I'm wondering what those mean. He, of course, found this in the prison, so it could be someone keeping track of their time in there. But it's just a nice little detail added on to here. But, of course, he shows the crew the key on the cloth, and then 
Jack says, you know, gentlemen, do you know what keys do? And then Moses says, keys unlock things. And then Gibbs says, and whatever is inside, whatever, whatever this key unlocks, inside there's something valuable. So we're going after whatever this key unlocks. And then Jack says, no. And then it confuses everyone. And then Jack says, if we don't have the key, we can't open whatever we don't have that it unlocks. So what good is finding whatever need be unlocked, which we don't have, without first having found the key what unlocks it? And then Gibbs says, so we're going after this key. And then Jack looks at him and says, you're not making any sense at all. <laughs> and then Gibbs is just utterly confused. <laughs> I love it. And then Jack says, any more questions? And then Marty says, so do we have a heading? And then Zach, Jack says, ah, heading. And he pulls out his compass. And then we have Jack's compass here, which is not working as it was before. It is continuously spinning, um, which potentially means that Jack doesn't know what he wants. Um, so he says, sit sail in a that way direction. And he just points in all different ways. Um, and Gibbs is kind of confused. And he said, and Jack says, you know, come on, get to it. You know the drill. And then Jack kind of walks away to his cabin. And then we have one little more, one more moment here with uh, Gibbs and Marty, where Marty uh, says, I've been noticed lately. The captain seems to be acting a bit strange. Er. And then Gibbs says, set and sail without knowing his own heading. Something's got Jack vexed. And mark my words, what bodes ill for Jack Sparrow, bodes ill for us all. So after that, we then go right back over to Port Royal, where Beckett is getting pretty comfortable. He's set up his office here, and we have a pretty brief uh, glimpse into what's in here. We have this cartographer who is working on a map of the world in Beckett's office. Um, and this guy works on this map throughout the whole movie. This guy is the unsung hero of this film, okay? Justice for this cartographer. I hope he's getting the pay that he deserves, because that map is fantastic. But anyway, um, some soldiers bring Will into Beckett's office here, um, and... Beckett has him unshackled, and we have this great scene of Beckett um, bargaining with Will here. So Beckett begins, and he says, you know, the East India Trading Company has need of your services. And then he pours Will a drink and offers him it, but Will just stands there and just stares at Beckett, and then Beckett just lowers the glass back down. Um, so Becca then says, you know, we wish for you to act as our agent in a business transaction with our mutual friend, Captain Sparrow. And then Will says, more acquaintance than friend, how do you know him? And then Beckett says, we've had dealings in the past. And then Beckett grabs the iron from the fireplace and picks it up and we see it is a P on that iron there. And he says, and we've each left our mark on the other. And of course, with that P being on that stake there, this is of course referring to Jack's pirate brand on his wrist. So this is kind of going into their history together. Of course, this is how Jack was branded with that P as a pirate on his arm. Um, and we'll get further into Jack and Beckett's backstory later on, because it's very interesting and it's honestly one of the highlights of the entire pirate's lore um, with these two characters but um, Will is kind of like thinking about that but then he says what mark did he leave on you and we don't get that answer in this movie but we will get it later on and I'll tell you when we get there and what that answer is so Beckett then says you know by your efforts Jack Sparrow was set free I would like you to go to him and recover a certain property in his possession. And then Will's like, recover at the point of a sword? And then Beckett says, bargain. And Beckett goes over and grabs the letters of Mark. And he tell, shows him the will and he says, you will offer what amounts to a full pardon. Jack will be free, a privateer in the employ of England. And then Will says, Somehow I, can, I doubt Jack will consider employment the same as being free. And then Beckett kind of scoffs and says, freedom. And he closes that, 
And then he go he walks outside and he says, Jack Sparrow is a dying breed. The world is shrinking. The blank edges of the map filled in. Jack must find his place in the new world or perish. And we have this fantastic shot of Port Royal here with, you know, the East India Trading Company kind of changing Port Royal. They've kind of taken over, honestly. Um, you know, Governor Swan isn't really even in charge anymore, which we see later in the film. But, you know, the East India Trading Company has taken over Port Royal. They're setting up their kind of home base here. Um, but then, you know, Beckett then says, you know, not unlike you, Mr. Turner, you and your fiance faced a hangman's noose. And then Will says, so you get Jack and the Black Pearl. And then Beckett's like, the Black Pearl? And then Will's like, yeah, the property in his possession that you value. And then Beckett's like, a ship? Hardly. The item in question is much smaller, more valuable. Something Sparrow keeps on his person at all times. A compass. And then Will's like, oh. And then Beckett's like, ah, you know it. And then Beckett says, bring back that compass, or there's no deal. And then we go back over to Jack on the Black Pearl. He is in the captain's cabin. He's trying to find where he's going. He's on this map here with his um, tools, and his compass is still spinning. It has not stopped spinning, and he's kind of confused as to why. Um... So Jack gives up. He's like, I'm, not, I'm getting nowhere with this. So he grabs a rum bottle, gets ready to drink, but he sees it's empty. And then, of course, we have the return of the line. says, why is the rum always gone? And then he gets up and gets his hat and coat. And then he begins to walk down to the, um, the cargo hold on the Black Pearl. So he goes out of the cabin and he goes down below decks. He sees all the crew members sleeping in there. Um, in their hammocks, and he says, as you were, gents, and then he walks down another set of stairs, and listen, I don't know what it is, but for 16 years, the the sound, or the music that plays as Jack walks down this set of stairs is so satisfying, I don't know, I hope if anyone else finds it satisfying, please let me know, because for 16 years, that when he walks down the stairs, so satisfying, honestly, it Oh, I don't know what it is. And for some reason, every time I walk down a set of stairs, that always plays in my head. Just further showing that Pirates of the Caribbean has the strongest grip on me. Every time I walk down a stair, down a set of stairs, that sound plays in my head. Just like every time I walk in the rain or go, go out into the rain, the maelstrom starts playing in my head. So I don't It's just... Let me know if you agree. Please tell me I'm not crazy. Anyway, Jack goes down here, and he goes through. He gets into the cargo hold, and he's looking for bottles of rum. Unfortunately, there's not much left. Um, but he sees one bottle, and he grabs it. Um, or before he grabs it, though, he sees some um, sea life in one of the ports for the bottles, um, which is kind of interesting. Then he sees that bottle. He grabs it. Um... But then he sees it's filled with sand, so unfortunately no rum for Jack. But as he's done that, someone says, time's run out, Jack, and then he drops the bottle. Um, which I also like the kind of the idea here that Jack grabs that bottle with the sand, and it's kind of like an hourglass, and then we have that time's run out line. So I like how that, I don't know if that was kind of... Um, intentional, but that's kind of how I see it, how it's like kind of like an hourglass with the sand pouring out. Um, times run out, just like the sand's running out. But Jack, of course, hears this voice, and he walks over to the corner, and he sees someone sitting down in the corner. And we are not sure who this is. This is a very mysterious person, not part of Jack's crew. How did he get on the ship? We'll find out in a second, but... Jack sees this person and he recognizes him. We don't know who he is, but Jack then says, Bootstrap? Bill Turner? And then everyone gasps, because this is finally when we're introduced to Will Turner's father, Bootstrap Bill Turner, uh, played by Stellan Skarsgård, who, um, great actor. I love his performance as, as uh, Bootstrap here. 
in both of these films. Um, but this is a big moment. This is, you know, we had all this um, stuff about Boostrap, you know, and him being so important in the first movie, he didn't, he didn't even show up. So, you know, they were thinking, like, you know, we have all this mention of Bootstrap. What if we do actually get to see him? So they brought him in, and, of course, he is not looking too good because we find out that he um, is on Davy Jones' crew. So we have this great scene between Bootstrap and, and Jack, and uh, Bootstrap says, you look good, Jack. And then Jack's freaked out. Jack is um, shocked. Because Jack uh, never thought he would see Bootstrap again. Um, of course, both of them were really good friends. And that is also established in some other books that we'll get to later on. But they were very good friends. Um, and Jack thought of uh, Bill Turner as a very good pirate, a very good man, a very good friend. Um, so it kind of shocks Jack to see him look like this. Um, but Jack then says, is this a dream? And then Bootstrap says, no. And then Jack says, thought not. If it were, there'd be rum. And then Bootstrap, of course, offers him some rum. And Jack tries to pry the bottle from Bootstrap's hand, and he, it's, like, crusted to his hand, which also, how long has the bottle been in his hand for it to do this? But then Jack pulls it out of his hand. They had this, ugh. Yeah, I don't know how long that bottle's been in his hand. Potentially for a long time, if something like that happened, but... Um, Bootstrap then says, you know, you got the pearl back, I see. And then Jack says, I had some help retrieving the pearl, by the way. Your son. And then Bootstrap, um, you know, with the mention of Will, he says, William. He ended up a pirate after all. Which, of course, kind of a sad moment because that was the life Bootstrap didn't want for his son. But unfortunately, like, fa like father, like son... Um, so kind of will will kind of became a pirate but Jack says you know and what do I owe the pleasure of a carbuncle <laughs> and then everything gets super serious and bootstrap says he sent me and then Jack is a little confused but he, Jack knows who he's talking about and then bootstrap says Davy Jones and then Jack is like ah so it's you then Shanghai Jew in the service, eh? And then Bootstrap says, I chose it. And then we have, we have, um, from Bootstrap's perspective, what happened to him after the mutiny. So this is very interesting. So Bootstrap says, you know, I'm sorry for the part I played in the mutiny against you, Jack. I stood up for you. Everything went wrong after that. They strapped me to a cannon. I ended up on the bottom of the ocean, the weight of the water crushing down on me. Unable to move. Unable to die, Jack. And when Bootstrap is telling Jack this story, like, we have this shot of Jack looking so saddened and Jack looking so remorseful for what happened. And it wasn't even Jack's fault that Bootstrap ended up like this. But Jack, you can see in Jack's expression here, he is so sorry for Bootstrap and he feels so bad, and he feels responsible for this. But Bootstrap continues, and he said, And I thought that even the tiniest hope of escaping this fate, I would take it. Um, of course, I forgot to mention, the reason Bootstrap wouldn't die, um, is, you know, a normal person would die by drowning. The reason Bootstrap didn't die is because of the curse um, being a thing, and that's why he was stuck at the bottom of the ocean, and he couldn't die because of the curse keeping him alive which is very sad, um, honestly, really, really sad. But that's why he um, ended up with Davy Jones' crew. When the Flying Dutchman showed up, Bootstrap Bill's like, get me out of here, I'll do anything. So he ended up on the Flying Dutchman as part of Jones' crew. And then Jack says, you know, it's funny what a man will do to forestall his final judgment. And then Bootstrap, you know, comes up to him and says, you made a deal with him too, Jack. He raised a pearl from the depths for you. 13 years you've been your captain. And then this is also something that's interesting as well. Why was the pearl raised from the depths? This is something also in a book. I know all this stuff is in books, but it's not in the movie. We'll get to it when we get to these books. But for if you're curious right now, the Black Pearl was sunk. 
It was originally known as the Wicked Wench, which we'll get to all the way in Pirates 5. Um, it was originally known as the Wicked Wench. And now this is kind of where it gets a little confusing as I'm not too sure if this is true or not. Um, but I mean, a lot of this factors into the story between Jack and Beckett. So I don't want to give too much of that away. Anyway, I'll, I'll just say the Black Pearl was sunk. Um, or the Wicked Wench was sunk. And Jack made a deal with Davy Jones to bring the Pearl from the depths for 13 years. At the end of that 13 years, Jack would then um, become part of the Dutchman's crew for 100 years. Um, and, you know, at the time, you know, oh yeah, Jack thought it was a great idea, get a ship back. So the, the Pearl was then risen from the depths. And the reason it was renamed the Black Pearl is because of the way it sunk. Um, it was actually burned. Someone had it burned and it sunk. Um, I won't say who that someone is, but it's very obvious to know if you know some of the pirate's history, you'll know who that is. But the ship was sunk, it was burnt and sunk, and when it was risen back up, it was completely black because it was charred from the flames, giving it the name, the Black Pearl. So that's kind of the origin of the actual Black Pearl, um, and the deal that Jack made with Davy Jones. So Bootstrap says, you know, Jack, you won't be able to talk yourself out of this. The terms that applied to me apply to you as well. One soul, bound to crew a hundred years upon a ship. And then Jack says, the Flying Dutchman already has a captain. And then Bootstrap says, well, then it's the locker for you. We have this great moment where Bootstrap says, Jones' terrible Leviathan will find you and drag you down with, and drag the pearl back to the depths and you along with it. And then Jack is like, any idea when Jones might release said terrible beastie? And then Bootstrap's like, I already told you, Jack. It time's up. And then he grabs Jack's hand. And then he says, he comes now, drawn with ravenous hunger, to the man what bears the black spot. And then we have the black spot materialize on Jack's hand as Bootstrap um, disappears into the wall of the pearl, um, showing how the Dutchman crew gets around. They can literally just appear out of nowhere, honestly. They can just go through walls. Um, but this is another interesting thing they, they brought into this movie, um, is the black spot. The black spot is, you know, a very kind of stereotypical um, thing from pirate lore and mythos. Um, you know, people, pirates would give others the black spot, and then they would um, maroon them. That's kind of what the black spot was. The black spot was. Um, and this is, you know, in Treasure Island, kind of, you know, the very original pirate story, um, you know, where Long John Silver and the, his crew of pirates, the crew of pirates then give Long John the black spot um, because they don't want him as their captain anymore. Um, and then if you've seen Treasure Island or if you've read Treasure Island, you know, they, they, they put the black spot on a page of the Bible where Long John Silver gets very angry about that. But maybe we'll cover Treasure Island and some other pirate stuff on the podcast, but Pirates of the Caribbean, of course, mainly first. Um, so, of course, they brought in the black spot to this movie, and they changed it up where it was on Jack's hand instead of a piece of paper given to him. Um, and this black spot is something that track... It's kind of like a tracker on Jack Sparrow, um, where the Leviathan of Davy Jones, known as the Kraken, can sense that black spot and can follow Jack. So, of course, Jack is terrified, and he immediately runs up on deck, screaming, um, waking his crew up. He says, on deck, all hands, on deck, scurry, I want movement, I want movement. So he's waking everyone up, they're all rushing, they're like, what is going on? Um, Jack gets on deck, he grabs a piece of cloth from one of his crew members and wraps it around his hand, and then Gibbs is like, do we have a heading? And then Jack's like, ah, ooh, land. And then he just runs away again, and Gibbs follows him. And then we have this great moment where Jack is hiding behind the mast, and then Jack pops up, and he's like, ah! And then he's like, scares him and Gibbs. And then Gibbs is like, which port? And Jack's like, didn't say port. I said land. Any land. And then right in this moment, Jack the monkey returns and grabs Jack's hat right off his head. Um, 
So the monkey then throws Jack's hat into the water um, and gives Nakreer like, Jack's hat, bring her about. And Jack's like, no, 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 leave it. Run. And then Jack runs away. So obviously something is very wrong. Um, and also shows how dedicated the crew is to Jack. They would literally turn the entire Black Pearl around just to get his hat from the water. Um, but anyway, Gibbs is like, you know, back to the stations. Deladia. And then Gibbs goes over to Jack, who is hiding behind the stairwell next to the captain's cabin. Um, he's just standing there, which is so funny. And then Gibbs is like, Jack? And then Jack's like, shh. And then Gibbs is like, for the love of mother and child, Jack, what's coming after us? And then Jack's like, nothing. Which is very ominous. And then we have a shot of the hat in the water as the pearl sails away. And then it morphs into a shot where it's now the next morning. The hat is still in the water and it's going toward a fishing boat. I love that shot there of how it kind of transitions. Um, but these fishermen, these three fishermen, um, they are not English. They pick up this hat in the water. Uh, they're, they're actually speaking Turkish. Um, so they pick up this hat and then they're all playing around with it. They're like, yeah, I'm the captain and everything. And they're all having fun with it. Um, and after they're having fun, there is a kind of a swell from the bottom, from under the ship. And then we have this shot of something, something massive beneath the waves going toward this fishing boat. Um, and this, of course, this creature rocks the boat very, um, tremendously, which scares these guys. And they are like convinced that the hat is cursed. So the one guy gives it back to the original guy who pulled it up from the water. He's like, I don't want it. I don't want it. It's cursed. And then they're all freaking out. And then there's some creaking sounds and all these sounds. And they're all freaking out. And then we have this um, music here, ominous music. And then we cut out to a distance shot of the boat. And out of nowhere, the entire boat is just pulled beneath the waves in a very very quick motion um, which shows this is what is tracking Jack this is the creature that Jack is scared of it can literally drag a ship down like that which is pretty scary um, but yeah and then after this we go back to Port Royal once again so we're back in Port Royal and it's um, Will Turner and Governor Swan going down to the prison um, and the one guard there is like, you can't be here. And then Governor Swan's like, I think you'll find he can. So Will runs over to Elizabeth, who is in prison, of course. Um, and that one guard says, Mr. Swan. And then Governor Swan's like, Governor Swan still. Do you think I wear this wig to keep my head warm? <laughs> so, of course, that's showing that, you know, he's not in charge anymore. It's Beckett who's in charge. Um because they're just, they're not even calling him Governor Swan anymore. Um, so they have that moment, and then Will and Elizabeth are talking through the bars. And Elizabeth's like, Jack's compass? What does Beckett want with that? And then Will's like, does it matter? I'm to find Jack and convince him to return to Port Royal in exchange the charges against us will be dropped. And after Will says this, Governor Swan's like, no, we must find our own avenue to secure your freedom. And then Will's like, is that a lack of faith in Jack or in me? And then Governor Swan's like, that you would risk your life to save sparrows does not mean he'd do the same to anyone else. And then Governor Swan's like, now, where's that dog with the keys? And he goes to look for that dog. Um, and while he does that, we have this very beautiful, cute scene of Will and Elizabeth here. Uh, oh my god. I don't know why, but for some reason, every scene with Will and Elizabeth has the most amount of tension and hotness in it. I don't know. It's apparently Orlando Bloom and Kira Knightley. They every scene they're in together just has is leaking tension, hot tension. With oh man. Anyway, Elizabeth says, "I have faith in you, both of you." So, of course, she believes in both Will and Jack. And, you know, she asks Will, where will you find him? And then Will says, Tortuga. I'll start there, and I won't stop searching until I find him. And then I turn to return here. 
to marry you. And then Elizabeth says, properly. And then Will says, only if you still have me. And then we have this great line where Elizabeth's like, if it weren't for these bars, I'd have you already. And as soon as she says that, Governor Swan pulls the sconce off of the prison wall, which is a great callback to when Will pulled it off in the first movie. I love that. Um, so that kind of breaks the mood. Um, but he's annoyed. But, you know, Elizabeth, he's like, I'll wait for you. And then we have one of the best lines in this franchise where Will gets really close to her through the bars, like so close, like you, you could like kiss her at that range. And then he whispers, keep a weather eye on the horizon. And then right like when they're like getting close to kiss, he walks away. And like, dude, come on. Like this is, oh, the people in charge, the guys, Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio, they wrote this scene, but they were not expecting the tension that Orlando and Kira would bring to this scene. <laughs> um, but that's, of course, a very important line, um, not just in the franchise, but for Will himself, because this exact moment is paralleled in the next movie, and I won't bring it up yet, because it's it'll make me cry. Um, but Will then leaves the prison, and he goes, he's going to search for Jack. So we have this great montage here of Will going around to different places asking about Jack Sparrow. So he first he first asks this fisherman who's like Captain Jack Sparrow owes me four doubloons. Heard he was dead. And then we go over to a fisherman who says Jack was in Singapore. That's what I heard. Drunk with a smile on his face. Sure as a tide, Jack Sparrow Turned up in Singapore. And then we go over to our next person, who is Giselle and Scarlett returning for this film um, from the first movie. So Will's over in Tortuga now. So Giselle's like, Jack Sparrow! And then Scarlett's like, I haven't seen him in a month. And then Giselle's like, when you find him, will you give him a message? And then Giselle slaps Will. So we have that great callback to the first movie. And then we have our last person, Will asks here, who is another fisherman. Um, and he says, cannot say about Jack Sparrow, but there's an island just south of the Straits where we trade for spice for delicious long pork. Cannot say about Jack, but you'll find a ship there, a ship with black sails. And this is also something interesting. When he refers to long pork here, he is not talking about pork. Long pork actually refers to human flesh, which is kind of freaky that these guys are trading for human flesh, but I'm not going to question them. But this, of course, alludes to where Jack and the Pearl are. They are on an island that is a little odd. And we'll get to that island in the next episode. So... It has been, um, as I'm recording this, we're 65 minutes in, that's before editing and anything else, um, 65 minutes in, and we are only 21 minutes into the movie. Oh my god. Oh, okay. So, of course, I mean, this episode is really long because there's a lot of stuff we have to kind of recap and bring up the speed for this movie starting here, um, but... Next week, we'll continue with Dead Man's Chest, and we'll find out where Jack has um, brought the Pearl and the crew, and why that was probably the worst island he could have chose out of any island, probably not the best one. And Will is now about to reach that island, ready to search for Jack to get that compass to free Elizabeth, and we'll get to that in the next episode. So... That's it for this week. Next week, we'll pick up right where we left off. If you've enjoyed this episode, um, I thank you for listening. If you are really enjoying this podcast, please give it a review or a rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening. Um, so far, it's pretty much just Spotify. No one's really listening on any other platforms. But if you are on those other platforms, um, feel free to give a review, give a rating. Um, if you're enjoying the podcast, um, that's very, very generous of you if you are doing that. Um, but that'll do it for this episode. 
I'll see you next time for the continuation of Dead Man's Chest. Podcast of the Caribbean is in no way affiliated with Disney. If you want to send me an email or a question, send it over to podcastofthecaribbean at gmail.com. You can also follow this podcast on Twitter at podcastpotc, and you can also follow us on Instagram at podcastofthecaribbean. Um, Over on those platforms, I post some fun content, some extra trivia that I don't cover in the podcast. Um, So make sure to go check out those pages. Give them a follow if you're enjoying the podcast. And as always, be sure to keep a weather eye on the horizon. And always remember, dead men tell no tales.